Welcome to Roll Calling, a podcast about actors we love and the movies we love them in. I'm Caroline Sita, the Lady of the Lake. And I'm Ned Baker, a thirsty Arthurian fuckboy in search of honor. The way this podcast works is that Ned and I take turns curating a five-film miniseries starring an actor we love. This is the fifth and sadly final installment of our Dev Patel retrospective series, and we have a very exciting, of-the-moment property to talk about Ned, which is the fact that I finished rewatching The Newsroom all three seasons. (laughs) You swerved me. You swerved all of us, I think. You know, uh, okay. How was the how was the newsroom? All it three was seasons. it was a journey. I feel like we're each allowed one artistically problematic white man that we just sort of stand unquestioningly. Oh, sure. And for me, that's Aaron Sorkin. So, oh, I thought you were going to say it was uh, Will McAvoy. <laughs> no, 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 not a Will McAvoy fan. You know, the newsroom is fascinating from a Dev Patel perspective because uh-huh. it feels like exactly what he should be doing. He's playing this young. British idealistic journalist who's like trying to do right by by the older generation but like stand up for the younger generation the problem is he's like the seventh member of the ensemble instead of the Mm -hmm. lead of the show which is clearly what it should have been yeah I mean I never watched any of the show so but I imagine if I were watching it now I would probably feel similarly that I'd be like move this guy up get some of these other clowns out of the way yeah we Neil Sampat was done dirty um, of course, we're not actually here to talk about the newsroom. <laughs> no, that's our episode. Thank you for Roll Calling <laughs> yeah. is produced and recorded by us, Ned Baker. Thanks Cedar. for listening. Um, next week, we will be doing the West Wing. No, we're actually here to talk about <laughs> David Lowry's medieval fantasy epic, The Green Knight. The summer oh, of Dev is here. <laughs> Ned and I are both wearing our medieval crown, uh, circle crowns. And my head is on fire. Which I would buy. They should sell those as merch. I would buy oh, a circle Oh, yeah. Crown. They are cool as fuck. But to... Okay, to tie the newsroom in a little more, I thought since maybe some people are joining us here for the first time, we could do a little recap, sort of both of Dev's career in general and of what we've sort of covered on the podcast so far. So That sounds good. Our sweet little Dev, who's having his big breakout summer this year, he started his original breakout debut. It was actually on the British TV show Skins which his mom just tells him to audition for. He's really only had the acting experience of sort of high school plays and stuff, but gets cast on this TV show. That TV show uh, leads him to Danny Boyle's Slumdog Millionaire because Danny Boyle's daughter is a fan of Skins. This is sort of a thread of Dev's career as these things sort of perfectly falling into place at times. Um, But obviously Slumdog is the thing that makes him sort of an international known star. But then one thing we really talked about on the pod is that at, even after this big breakout debut, Dev did not get the opportunities that he should have and that I think, frankly, white actors would have likely been given. He kind of enters this real fallow period that we looked at through the prism of M. Night Shyamalan's The Last Airbender. Yeah, a period where sort of paradoxically, probably most people could name him and recognize him on site, and yet you're just not seeing him in almost any big name or successful or enjoyable movies that is a very good call he probably did have like you would maybe still put his name on a poster to sort of bring in a certain crowd but he was not getting if you had cast him in the movie in the first place which you i guess wouldn't have done 
Well, this is the period where he is doing the newsroom. As we mentioned, Mm -hmm. he's like the seventh lead. He's also doing the best exotic Marigold Hotel franchise, where again, he's sort of a comedic supporting player to a bunch of old British thespians. And it really is not until uh, Garth Davis's Lion that he has this massive turning point where he emerges as the beardy dev that we now know and love and sort Mm -hmm. of really reframes himself as a serious, dramatic leading man gets nominated for an oscar and starts i think what is now this really fascinating period of his career where it feels like people are finally using him in the way that he deserves and are finally showcasing the full range of his talents we were both huge fans last week of armando iannucci's the personal history of david copperfield yeah huge fans which i think is such a great blend of comedy dev and drama dev and british dev you know it just felt like to me that is just again i will keep saying it but i think people should check out that movie i think it's so good and then after playing david copperfield he is now here in the summer of dev starring in the green knight as i have always said it's sir gawain this movie says it's sir gawain (laughs) i don't know what we'll end up saying on the podcast itself yeah, we'll just jump. I, I will probably keep saying Gawain. I mean, he. I heard him say Gawain in an interview, so I feel, uh, I feel enabled to do that as well. Or we could be like Sean Harris and just say Garwin for no reason. Garwin. Which Sir Garwin. even even David Come Lowry, he was like, he just said that, and I he he tends to do a lot of research, so I trusted that that was a way you could say it, and I didn't correct <laughs> him. <laughs> I would probably not fuck with Sean Harris on set. Whatever he wanted to do, I would just do it. He seems like he could be a slightly intimidating actor to work with. I can see that. Uh, Ned, we have not talked about this movie at all. We saw it separately. That's right. I saw it last night at the Regal. I went by myself, uh, got myself a big frozen cherry thing and sat there. I also saw it by myself. I saw a matinee on Monday. Didn't get any treats, but someone in my audience did because they were unwrapping a lot of candy. And let me tell you, this is a quiet movie, so you really hear <laughs> when people are unwrapping their candies. I have a borderline Pavlovian compulsion to get treats when I go to the movies, and it's it's great. I always end up spending like seven dollars and fifty cents more than I actually wanted because I need to have something I can like suck on. <laughs> Sorry. Well, what I <laughs> you are a medieval fuck boy, so it does yeah. track. So I would like to know A, how were your thoughts on what your drink were? And then B, what were your thoughts on the Green Knight? Drink was fine. Green Knight. I liked it. I liked it, I think. It is not a movie that unfolds itself to you. Honestly, none of these A24 movies are. They don't just I don't feel like I walk out feeling like I have the whole thing boxed up and I understand it completely and I understand my feelings on it completely. I would say that I liked it, particularly in the, you know, 12 or so hours since I watched it. I have just continued to be thinking about it. And a lot of it has stuck with me. And like, I feel like I'm like holding on to the feelings that it uh, elicited from me, you know, sort of like exploring those and unpacking those. But Movies really can go a number of different ways in terms of how much they kind of lay out what you are supposed to feel and what you are supposed to make of it and what, in fact, everything you're seeing means. And this movie, I would say, falls far to the end of the spectrum where I don't immediately have a frame of reference for processing it. So I would say I liked it, but I was also sort of like 
tense and uncertain and bewildered through a lot of my experience of watching it. I, I'm eager to watch it again. I, as I say, this has kind of happened with a lot of movies in the past few years. I mean, definitely A24 films like Midsummer and Uncut Gems, um, other things. You know, it's, like, I watched a lot of Paul Thomas Anderson movies recently. That's, I guess, a very film broy thing to say. But I think a lot of them also, like, I kind of end the movie. The credits roll, and I'm, like, still not sure how I feel. And then a lot of those movies go on to be some of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I was curious about how our conversation today was going to go, because this is by far the most, like, art housey thing we've ever discussed. Like, I think mm-hmm. we, in our, we, don't, we haven't released that many episodes yet, but in covering Christian Bale and Emily Blunt and now Dev, we've done a lot of different genres but everything we've covered has felt very narrative or like character driven. You know, it's like a very mm-hmm. obvious way to discuss it. And this is a movie that is like 90% just vibes. And the, <laughs> it will be fascinating <laughs> to sort of figure out how we want to talk about. Yeah. Said I mean, I, th- I think that we tend to, I think you and I probably in a film community might be seen as like, I think maybe one of our traits would be sort of championing populist entertainment or certain sure. populist entertainment franchises. I mean, like, we both like, we both criticize, but like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, probably the most, I'd say, well-known, populist, easy to disdain popcorn entertainment franchise right now. But yeah, I did have a, th- a thought as I was walking out to the car last night, and I was a little anxious because I was like, I don't really know what to say about that mm-hmm. movie. And I had an option there where I could have gone home and basically like dived into a bunch of think pieces so that I could come here with a bunch of takes and analyses like ready to go. And I kind of made the decision. This is kind of an inflection point. Like I'm I'm not on this podcast. I'm not going to be an intellectual film analyst. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to be a movie guy who <laughs> likes watching movies and is sometimes totally clueless. And that's definitely the energy that I'm going to have to necessarily bring to this podcast today so rather than coming with my with my takes clearly formed i think i'm gonna need us to just process the green mm-hmm. night together a mutual processing i'm always here for that unless so my... you've processed it already in which case please take it away <laughs> no i definitely feel, i feel similar to you in that it is a movie i would love to rewatch. like i do kind mm-hmm. of wish we had had time to see it twice i'm curious to see how we'll play in a rewatch. here's my experience with watching it was so mm-hmm. into the beginning at first again it's a movie that like thrives on vibes was very into those vibes mm-hmm. there's a real i think dev in this movie is the closest any human being has ever come to recapturing what vigo mortensen did with aragorn which i would consider a <laughs> god tier <laughs> performance and there were moments yeah. where i was like dev is like 90% of the way there and it's incredible. He's um, approaching I, that. He's approaching the Aragorn mm-hmm. nexus point. There were moments in the middle, maybe the latter half of his journey that that did lose me a little bit. I was feeling like maybe I had less to grasp onto than I was wanting. Mm-hmm. And then I think the final like 15 minutes of this movie are some of my favorite final 15 minutes in any movie. I loved the ending of this movie so much. And it was one of those endings where it retroactively just made me love the entire movie more. So I, I had literal really agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do think maybe we should break this movie down in, in chapters and get mm-hmm. to that when we get to it. But But I do agree that it ends on such a strong filmmaking and acting note mm-hmm. that you do kind of walk out being like, yeah, 
Hell yeah. Or at least I did. Certainly not everyone did. The movie theater I was in, like, erupted into chatter as soon as the movie was over. Like, it was not... It was not a kind of movie. It was not a reaction where people were kind of like, huh. I think it, and I, I think that chatter was just based on some of the like snippets I caught, like truly from all ends of the spectrum of taste and interest in that movie. I mean, um, from the like, like blown away reverential to the like completely derisive. Because if you're, if you're like, if you're looking to make fun of this movie for being art housey, <laughs> <Yeah>. like. <laughs> You've got all the fodder you want, you know? You can just you can just go there. And I think a lot of people did, but certainly like people were buzzing as soon as the uh, as soon as the credits rolled on this. That's fascinating. My audience was much more subdued, although you mm. I do think this is the movie that the ending is going to jar you in one way or the other, either in a good way or a bad way. Yeah. I will say I saw it at a multiplex, you know, not at like a not at a place that like tries to cultivate an artsy vibe. Yes, was... I was in a slightly more art housey realm, so maybe that mm-hmm colored it a little more so they kind of murmured quietly yes you know, exactly <laughs> sip their sip their plastic cups of chianti oh uh, maybe we should say well this will be too late if people have missed the movie but there is a little post-credit scene i mean it's not mm-hmm. much it's basically just a shot of a little kid but i was sitting there sometimes i like to just sit through the credits and sort of just decompress a little bit it's like meditative you know? yeah i like that little meditative time and in my mm-hmm. head i was like haha it's like i'm waiting for a post-credit scene of course, this won't be the movie that has one. And then it did. And I was like, wow, <laughs> all those people that scurried out, they missed a little shot of a small little girl holding a circle crown. Holding one of those awesome crowns. I also think this movie is, I could see this, you know, we this is like a medieval fantasy epic, right? Like, I think mm-hmm. that there is a world where people are going to think that this is more in the vein of an action adventure movie. And yeah, sort of go sure. in with that set of expectations. And something that fascinated me about it is that I do think, on the one hand, it is just this portentous, art housey, you know, A24 to the max movie. But on the other hand, it does have some of those elements of a pulpy medieval adventure movie, too. It straddles that line in a really fascinating way. It's just that the pacing is so slow. Yeah. But, but I found that like a fascinating thing to try to wrap my head around. Yes, there are a lot of ways in which it plays. It does not. It doesn't throw out the entire book at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the playbook, but also the original. I mean, it is interestingly like, as I understand it, a pretty faithful adaptation of the, you know, original fourteenth-century chivalric romance. Have um, you read that? Was that something you had to read in high school or anything? No, I've definitely read. Like, you know, great illustrated classics equivalent. You know, I've read like youth adaptations. So mm-hmm. I was familiar with some of these story elements, but I've never read the original, you know, epic poem text. I was trying to remember, like, while watching the movie, this was ringing no b- bells for me having read the poem. But when reading, mm. I, then I read the Wikipedia plot summary for the poem, and that was sounding more familiar to me. So maybe I yeah. did read this. I didn't have strong impressions. I really feel like I went into this movie. I don't even think I saw a trailer for it. I went into this very cold. I had seen some still images, and I think uh-huh. that was it. It was interesting to rewatch the trailer and see how it was marketed. I am familiar with the director, David Lowry, who tends to make very slow, meditative, contemplative movies. So I was sort of prepped for that. He, um, For a little background on him, he made this... Uh, his big breakout movie was called Ain't Them Body Saints, which is sort of like a meditative riff on Bonnie and Clyde style romance uh, with Rooney Mara and Casey 
uh, Affleck that I uh-huh. really like that movie. He did the Pete's Dragon Disney remake that had Robert oh. Redford in it and Bryce Dallas Howard that some people really stand for that movie. To be honest, I remember having no impression <laughs> Missed of that it, entirely. Of having, uh, I saw it and it left no impression on me. Some people, they... Uh, s- of the Disney live action remakes, it's a it's a sort of like a film Twitter favorite. Huh. Um, and then David Lowry also did uh, recently The Old Man and the Gun, which is a really fun little like crime caper with Robert Redford as a as a gentleman bank robber, but sort mm-hmm. of done in the style of a seventies, I don't know, sort of like action comedy, really charming. And then yeah. he also made a ghost story, which is like one of my favorite films of the past 20 years it's this super weird (laughs) the premise is that is that there's a married couple the husband dies and for the rest of the movie he appears literally as a ghost with a sheet over him like a halloween style ghost Mm -hmm. so it's sort of funny and dark and sad and commenting on both a very small scale intimate story and also the entire experience of human existence. I think it would be a really interesting movie to put in direct conversation with the Green Knight. But all of that did kind of prep me for the, the Lowry style. Exactly. And sort of how this movie might be paced. Was this like, did you, because you said you had high expectations going into this. Would you say that this is what you were expecting it to be, the Green Knight? I'd say it kind of was in terms of vibes, although I didn't know what the story was going to be like. I think I kind of had the impression, like, I knew some of the main story beats. I know that, like, the knight comes in, Gawain cups off his head, the knight is like, ha ha, gotcha, bitch, I'll see you in a year. (laughs) And then he goes, and, like, then they have their little encounter there. So I didn't know how that, you know, it's a story that I think can be told in a manner of minutes, or, you know, as I did, I think just so eloquently, a manner of seconds. Um... I didn't know how it was going to be turned into a full story because I'd forgotten some of his like quest to get there, but I figured it would be a quest. I kind of wasn't sure. I guess I figured like he's going to go on a quest and it's going to be like midsummer and be very unsettling. Mm-hmm. Um, I, so I don't think I was able to entirely predict the tone. You know, midsummer has like I guess I guess it's kind. You know, I'd seen the lighthouse. That's another A twenty four. That I feel very mixed on. That was definitely a movie I came out and was like, I don't know what to make of that. Sure was some gross <laughs> shit in there. Very charismatic performances. I don't know if I ever want to see that again. So I figured it would be kind of like weird images, weird, beautiful pastoral images and strange encounters. And I guess I was right in that. And yet mm-hmm. I wouldn't say like, I wouldn't say things were playing along and I was going like, oh yeah, I saw that coming. I did still feel a sense of uncertainty all the way through it. I really knew nothing about this plot. Like what you're saying, like, oh, the Green Knight comes in and this, I was like, <laughs> really, if, if I did study this in high school, it fully left my brain. But so maybe like you suggested, we can kind of go through the plot a little bit here. I do think that there is a cheekiness to this movie as much as it sort of on a surface level reads serious. I think even even just having the little text on screen I think mm-hmm. it opens with a filmed adaptation of the chivalric romance by Anonymous, right? Like there's a certain cheekiness to like yeah we know what we're doing here like we're <laughs> we're kind of dressing up this fancy thing because i think of a24's vibe as being like well it's hard to pick its vibe it's funny i saw i saw a tweet the other day the tweet was like people complain that all mcu films are the same but have you seen more than one a24 film 
and I'm like, yeah, there are definitely some elements here that that uh, feel tonally consistent. Like, oh, by the way, did yours have a trailer for the movie Lamb? Yes, it did. That's going to be the most A24 movie that ever A24, for sure. It's like pastoral beauty, long lingering shots with interesting practical effects, some like freaky animal shit, and like ultimately like a disturbing parable about human frailty. We got some spooky trailers before mine. I would not yeah. say that as a whole, I thought the Green Knight was this was that spooky, but the trailers were kind of freaking me out. I was like, oh no, what is what is this movie gonna be? No. But oh, so yeah, so so I agree that there is like there is some cheekiness to being like, here comes the newest hip film for the hippest film people in the world. It is, wait for it, an Arthurian legend that you learned in elementary school. So the whole premise does feel a little like that's right. We're doing one of the oldest stories, um, but we're doing it very cool film style. And I, I do think that, yeah, I don't know. Is cheeky is cheeky the word I would use? Like there is something sort of knowingly like stylized, stylized about you know combining like the very new with the very old. Mm-hmm. Even the opening shot. If I'm remembering correctly, it's just Dev sitting there on the throne with the scepter and the little ball thing they're always holding, and then his head mm-hmm. like bursts onto fire, and it feels so yeah. theatrical. Yes, to me. Yeah, I love the little. I love little prologues in movies, like imagistic prologues. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, I do think that the opening of this movie is probably the most accessible part. Like we open, he's sort of in the brothel, he's flirting with his little brothel girlfriend, they're going off to Christmas, he's talking to his mom, he's hanging out with Arthur and Guinevere. Like to me, this setup all felt very like, it, it was reminding me of like Prince Hal from Henry the Fourth and then Henry the Fifth, like a very oh, classic, I'm a little, you know, I'm a, I'm a privileged sort of aristocrat, but I'm not living up to my potential. I'm sort of a layabout, but I'm very caddish and charming and... Mm-hmm. Sort of explaining how he fits into this world. And I found all of that pretty, that to me, none of that felt too abstracted. I felt like I was sort of on board with all that right from the beginning. No. And that's probably wise to say, like, when you are establishing his status quo before he goes out into the magic riddled wilds, that's when you want things to stylistically feel a little normal. I mean, it's definitely like, it's definitely like, cool knights of the round table you know they've got Mm -hmm. cool tattoos and cool like top knots and things um there's a cool merlin who you just glimpsed for like a second i did like the little glimpse of merlin so but then at the same time there's also this sense of like generational shifts right like this is Mm -hmm. not a young strapping arthur and a hot young guinevere it feels like these are our aging monarchs and the knights of the round table are definitely aging and we have Gowan slash Gawain, who is Arthur's nephew, and will we sort of becomes eventually becomes clear that he's going to be the one that will inherit the throne because Arthur doesn't have any kids after Arthur dies from smoking a hundred cigarettes a day. <laughs> yeah, um, but there's the sense that he hasn't had his adventures yet, as Guinevere clarifies. Like he has mm-hmm. just been this again, very Prince Hal lay about having fun not taking things too seriously but at the same time i think feeling a lot of the pressure to live up to what the knights of the past have done mm-hmm. yeah and it is an interesting it is interesting to look at that through the lens i mean i know it is it's a it is a tale as old as time i mean literally it's it's using elements from this original 
epic poem and also as you say like pulling a lot of sort of uh potentially consciously and if not um you know definitely there's a lot of links to that uh to that shakespeare play but also it does feel like i don't know how old lowry is i don't want to get too he's 40 i don't want to discuss generations too much because i think a lot of the generational discourse today is super dumb but it does feel a little bit like it does feel a little bit like the story of a millennial who is like he's 30 a lot has been provided for him he doesn't know if he is ever going to accomplish anything in the way that the previous generation has. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know if he wants to. And then he has these figures who are like, we believe in you. We believe you can go out and accomplish things. And another thing, another element of generational discourse that I will include because I find it interesting is the idea of millennials being a generation that knows they can't have what the previous generation did and yet they still want to try. Like mm-hmm. we all love having dinner parties. Whereas I feel like Gen Z is kind of like, why would you even want to try to have that? You're not going to have it. That's dumb. And I do think we see a little bit, you know, there is there is this moment. I think it is an interesting and, and cool scene where they pull him up. He's basically just going to be sitting and drinking happily. And Arthur and Guinevere pull him up and have him sit next to him and kind of give him this like mythic feeling pep talk mm-hmm. about how you haven't had your great glorious adventures yet. And we can see the direct line from A to B when the Green Knight comes in and casts the challenge to any of the knights and Gawain says, that's me, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. Sort of going through the motions without even, you can tell, really thinking about or processing what it is he's doing or committing to. Yes. But saying, all right, here we go. Yes. So I, I know that you said you didn't do much research or reading about this movie. I in my desire to be the good type A student did a lot of reading and research about this movie. But I think that what you're, what you're saying about the idea of Gawain as this sort of sort of guy that's on the cusp of adulthood, but is not fully getting over that hurdle. That's a hundred percent what David Lowry was talking about connecting to the material. He has said that in writing and working on this movie, he realized he was writing about him and his mom and he felt like he was one of those like kids that wouldn't leave home like a quote unquote failure to launch. Uh, yeah. To reference the Matthew McConaughey sure. uh, rom-com classic. But David Lowry was saying that he felt like he really struggled to leave home when it was time to do that. And that it really took his mom to sort of actively push him out of the house. And he, in writing this, realized how much he was writing a story of Gawain sort of trying to figure out how to be, you know, an adult in this world, sort of a, a quote unquote man in the the knighthood sense and then also like his relationship with his mom which i think that's where this movie to me you get the sense that this movie is going to be weird when we start getting into how Gawain's mom is involved with the creation of the green knight which is one Mm -hmm. of those things that i think is shown in visuals but never fully explained she's Mm -hmm. sort of sort of functioning as like the morgan lefay archetype but no, this, this is not a movie where it's like we're naming all the characters and clearly explaining who they are and how they relate to everything. But she's certainly no. functioning. No, they don't as say a... Merlin. They don't say Excalibur. They try I'm to not avoid. Even sure a lot if they of say things. Arthur. Maybe they don't. Maybe they just say King. Yeah. Greatest of kings. <laughs> uh, you should do the whole podcast in your Sean Harris voice from now yeah, on. I think. Yeah. Um, oh, that so was my it's... Ralph Innocent voice. Damn, must not oh, be that good. Shoot. Well, you know, all of our beardy. British men, whether their beards are made of hair or tree trunks. Uh, so we have we have Gwen's mom, played by the great Sharita Chowdhury, who 
sort of the sense is like conjures the green knight. At least that's mm-hmm. what I was getting from it. What I, I, oh, I totally agree that she conjures him. Not clear if she conjures him from somewhere or creates him. I think, I guess I get the impression that maybe he exists in this chapel. It's, as you say, it's deliberately unclear. I read this differently at first than later on. At first, I thought that the plot we were sort of seeing, I thought, I agree that I thought she was sort of the Morgan Le Fay figure and that she was creating something to basically entrap Arthur and then was going to be like, oh, no, my son got wrapped up in it. But that isn't how it ends up playing out. She doesn't seem to have any regret about going and getting involved. In fact, later on, it seems like maybe things are going according to plan. And now that you give me this context of David Lauer being like, my Mm -hmm. mom had to get me out of the house, I absolutely now think that supports the interpretation that she had set up this very serious, potentially deadly game, maybe in a sense understanding that it would that it would galvanize Gawain, which is a crazy thing for a mom to do, but it's like works a make it or fable. break it moment. And I think it also works for this world of knightly chivalry, right? Which I mm-hmm. think is so important to just the entire like stakes of this movie. That this is not life or death and logical in a way we would act today. It is it is logical by the logic of the most important thing you can do in life is be an honorable knight. And I think that that totally plays into when the Green Knight arrives at this Christmas feast and sort of says, one of you guys challenge me, you can strike any blow you'd like on me, the deal then, and then you get my axe in return. Then in a year, come find me and I will return the blow to you. And then whatever happens, happens, then we can be cool friends after that. And so it sort of feels like the logical thing to do here. He even says, like, whether you, you know, behead me or give me a a scratch on the cheek, I'll give that back to you. So it sort of feels like the logical thing to do here would be to give him the most minor injury possible in order to (laughs) then get that back to you. But I think that you feel when Gwen is the one that jumps up to take this challenge, you feel the pressure of like, would that just be embarrassing, right? Like he feels like he has to prove his mettle and do the most macho chopping off this guy's head thing, either because he doesn't believe this guy can reanimate and come back to life, or because he's like, whether or not he can, I can't stand up here and do this wimpy little cut on the cheek thing to sort can't of cheat my way it. out of this. I have to sort of commit. And I think Dev plays this so well, this sort of like, he kind of, like you said, jumps up impulsively to, to join the challenge, and then is so confused as to what to do when the knight doesn't go to start a fight he essentially just presents his head and you really see Gwen being like is this a trick like someone tell me what to do I don't know what I'm supposed to do here but I can't admit that I don't know what I'm supposed to do because that would be embarrassing in front of all my cool uncle and his friends (laughs) he's just caught in a situation being like now I have to back my own play shit but like that panic is totally in his eyes he's got those little Dev Patel like darty eyes Yes, which we, I mean, that's like been consistent since Slumdog Millionaire. I remember us praising sort of his panic when he was trying to guess which, you know, is it A or B or whatever Mm -hmm. on the, on the Millionaire show, his little, like his eyes are darting around think, yeah, he does, he does play that really well, the sort of panic and indecision, but really trying to keep it together on the outside. Mm -hmm. So I think that I was really into this whole scene of the challenge. He does end up sort of cutting off his head and then the knight picks up his head and rides away with it. Which is like such a good, I love that image so much. Him like holding, riding the horse and holding his head out at arm's length and the head is just going like, ah, ha, 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 ha. And it's that, funny that- I could just eat that up. I love it. 
It's funny that Lowry had done, he did Pete's Dragon, which was a Disney remake, and his next project is actually Peter Pan and Wendy, which is going to be Disney's live action retelling of Peter Pan. And oh. the headless thing reminded me so much of that. Remember that little Disney short that's like Sleepy Hollow? Do I ever? I loved that thing. <laughs> this, I was like, oh, this feels very, that, the imagery, I mean, I guess it's just the imagery of that story in general, but it felt really tied almost to that Disney animated thing. And it was interesting that Lowry is so tied in with Disney now. Very, I mean, clearly they, you know, I think of the Green Knight as putting his head back on his body, but I could be wrong. But yeah, you have a headless horseman thing there that's extremely cool. And that's an ancient that's an ancient version of it. It's really cool. And just a little sidebar, the Green Knight looks amazing. I was going to ask what you think of the Green Knight just in general. Well, I uh, the, the character, right? Yeah. Yeah, I love him. <laughs> I love him. I think his design is beautiful. Uh, I think it's really cool. I don't know that, that because that I actually think is a a design adaptation choice. I think of him as just being described as a knight who's all fully green. Yes. And here he's like an ent. Exactly. Yeah. He's, he is this woody tree creature, which I think just pulls on this idea that he is sort of like an ancient elemental being. Mm -hmm. And it also feeds into an interesting moment later on where Alicia Vikander sort of explores like what green means and greenness and life and rot. And yeah, he is this deeply intimidating central figure of a wild natural world that is clearly like not safe for, you know, a human being to go out in. And it's interesting because again, I would say that this it's, it's got these relevant modern themes, but it also takes on themes that you don't see that often anymore. I associate this with like ancient Greek plays like Antigone has a lot of this exploration of, you know, just based on where civilization was in relation to nature at the time. Mm -hmm. It was a different thing where like we hadn't mapped everything. We hadn't paved everything. And there was this sense of nature as being wild and uncontrollable and dangerous. And civilization such as it was, was this these like small little islands but generally like the mass of the world was untamed and mm. perilous and, and yet, i feel like you definitely have that here i was just gonna say at the same time there was a more for, i think it was more active for if you wanted to build something like you were seeing the trees getting cut down to build something there for the first time which mm -hmm. i think probably as modern people even if we're concerned about environmentalism like that's not when i see a building being built it's being built on a street you know what i mean it's not yeah. like i think there was a pre there was maybe a present even if there was a sense like nature is so much bigger than us which maybe mm -hmm. we don't always feel now there was also a sense of like we are encroaching on nature and we're fully seeing that like if our town is expanding we're watching trees being cut down yes yeah i think i think it does it does both and I, I you know frankly like probably so do the works i cited there like i think in antigone like the wild they're describing the protagonist antigone as being like a force of wildness a force of like nature as opposed to the sort of law of civilization so it is like exploring this uh this idea of what man does is build these kind of like cold castles and kills animals for fun, as we see later on. And those two forces are at bay. But yeah, you have a sense of this is a quest that is like going out into a dangerous world. Although, frankly, mm -hmm. like part of what makes it dangerous is people. So I guess it's all kind of going in circles there. Yeah. Just to say my little thoughts on the Green Knight. Did you know all of it, none of it is VFX? It's all prosthetics that they made him with? That tracks. I Isn't can see that. Cool? I mean, it looks really practical. It looks it's, so it, cool. Yeah, he and looks I, amazing. 
love that performance. Mm-hmm. Ralph Innocent, who, who I incorrectly identified that you were <laughs> doing an impression <laughs> of earlier. I think he's he has such a like a playful nature. He's both very scary and playful. Yeah. Which ties into this idea of he presents what he's doing as a game. And a Arthur Christmas kind of game. reminds Gawain. He's like, oh, it's just a game. But you're like, is it just a game? Is it a game? It I think he's like, going to get his head chopped right. off. It feels like that's Gawain's whole thing is like, uh, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> you say those words, but they're not helpful for me in processing what's about to happen to me. Yeah, I guess that's during the the sort of, there's a chapter. So after this whole, the first scene is on Christmas and we, you know, we meet him, thirsty medieval fuck boy. <laughs> we have this Christmas game. And then there's a, a, a quick chapter of a too quick year where it kind of shows mm-hmm. like, Kind of gives the impression that most of the year what he does is just like be in denial about this. Yeah. Um, and there's a great scene where he's like, he's drinking in a bar and he like throws some guy out because he's being confronted with what he has to do. And you see snowflakes fall and it's like, oh, well, Christmas is coming soon, dude. Time to yeah. time to pay the piper. And we get the little puppet show, mm. which I think, and the bar scene speaks to this too. It's like Gwen's story is immediately becoming myth even as he is a person living it. Yes. Do you know what I mean? He's sort of like, he's panicked about like, what am I going to do? And everyone's like, ooh, what an interesting story that we get to witness. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of a disconnect there. So but I guess before he sets off, what did you think of Alicia Vikander as the, because she ends up playing two characters in this, but as the sort of Essel peasant girlfriend who's like ends up being kind of the last person he speaks to before he heads off, I think, or one of the last people. Yeah, I, I liked her. I liked her in that role. Um, I thought she was thought she was charismatic. I like what she does for the plot because I think the movie allows us to live in this sort of chivalric honor and glory model without being like, damn, the whole thing's dumb. But she kind of brings that perspective as a, you know, as you say, as like a sort of a common peasant person. She's like, uh, I would just not go. So <laughs> yeah. that would be easy. Yeah. If I were Sir Gawain, I would simply not go get my head cut off. I would simply not go. I like her vibe too. I don't know if I could stand up for her, either her wig or her accent, but I really like the warmth she brings. And she kind of is like, hey, do you want to marry me? Like, you could yeah. just break. Again, it's, she's sort of, sort of like, you could just break all these rules. Like, these rules are just arbitrary. Like, you have yes. to marry a noble woman. You have to fulfill this knightly duty. Like, whatever, dude, you can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And I like that sort of. Her knowingness about what it is, but also her willing to cha- her willingness to challenge the status quo. Yeah, um, this is where we get into the bulk of the journey, which of which I would say the main interludes that we can talk about in more detail. But in general, his first mm-hmm. one is he meets this little scavenger, yes, played by Barry Cogan, who sort of is like he wants to get directions from him, and then and then the little scavenger is like, hey, pay me a tip for that, and ends up sort of stealing from him. Yep. The next little interlude is that he meets this ghostly St. Winifred, played mm-hmm. by Falcon and the Winter Soldiers, Aaron Kellyman. Uh, and he, like, she's Solo a headless... Solo Star Wars Stories, Aaron Kellyman. Yeah. What is her, what is her um, like, Innis Nest or whatever? Enfys Nest. Yeah. Coolest man. part of the movie. <laughs> that is what I think of her name as being. Like the actress oh, here's, named. Here's Enfys Nest in, yeah. uh, in this Green Knight <laughs> Playing a ghost. Uh, so he has a little interlude with her where he is helping her get her head back. Uh, he has an interlude where he befriends a fox, eats some potentially like hallucinogenic mushrooms, and then either really or hallucinates seeing some giants walking yep. along. Yep. And then probably the biggest of the this journey is he ends up at this castle with Lord 
Joel Edgerton and Lady Elisa Vikander uh, and a sort of potentially blind woman who's with them where they they enter into another little game yeah. sort of thing here. One thing, so this was sort of putting on my former, I guess I wasn't an English major, but, you know, school nerd hat here. So there mm-hmm. is this idea of the, like, code of chivalry, including five principles of which are friendship, generosity, chastity, courtesy, and piety. And my brain sort of wants to be like, okay, does each of these little interludes represent one of those values? Hit me with those values again. They're friendship, uh-huh. generosity, chastity, courtesy, and piety. To some degree, I think it does not fit neatly, right? Like, it's not like, oh, here's our exact one-to-one. I think this movie mm-hmm. is more ambiguous than that. But I do think elements of those are represented in this sort of bulk of the journey Yes. Portion of the movie. I think obviously like the chastity thing is Lady Alicia Vikander like tempting him, right? Like that's the sort of yes. most obvious one. That I think pretty obvious. Friendship could potentially be his little friendship with the fox. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Maybe. The generosity mm-hmm. sort of feels like maybe with the scavenger. Yeah, he asks him for a kindness. Although there's also yeah. I think there's also generosity in his in his experience with St. Winifred, because he says, if I go get it, what will you give me? And she says, don't ask me that. And then he goes That's and gets so it anyway. Funny. Her line yeah. delivery there. She's like, don't ask me that. Why would you ask me that? Why would you ever ask me that? <laughs> um, and then courtesy and piety. I mean, again, I think like, yeah, he's courteous. You know what I mean? I, all of these mm-hmm. things kind of kind of go. It, it doesn't map as neatly as my brain wants it to map. But I you think want, certainly yeah. you could see that all of these things are being tested along this journey. Quest. Yeah, totally. So what from here, I guess, what stood out from you from this? What are you still parsing and chewing on from this sort of journey? Oh, I mean, all of them. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go one at a time. So you've got your scavenger thing. Mm -hmm. If you want someone to be like a cute, creepy little like, maybe not cute, like a creepy little boy energy from like maybe an adult, (laughs) like who are you going to get besides Barry Cogan? He's the best in the business for that kind of thing. Yeah. uh, Interesting that that like. They tie him up, they take his stuff, they run off in a way where I think you might expect them to be revisited later on. And then that story yes. is just kind of done. He gets I his can't... axe back from St. Winifred somehow. But like, I think the portion of this movie where I was struggling to hold on to it sometimes was the sense that things didn't come back or tie in or fit as neatly. Mm-hmm. You know, I wonder if at points, for me at least, that there was too much ambiguity to yeah. it. I do really like the shot where he gets robbed and tied up and the camera does like a 360 pan and then we see him as a skeleton and then it does the pan the opposite direction and we this is Dev, uh, yes. Gawain. Then we Gawain see Gawain back up. into his normal self. Mm-hmm. And I think that almost feels like a little bit of foreshadowing for what the movie does at the end in terms of like potentially envisioning a future envisioning a possible future and then saying okay i've envisioned that i can't do that let me make my new choice yeah because he sort of he sort of gives up he kind of you see his he's like struggling to break his bonds and then he like just like lets his head sink in defeat and then it has that long shot and then when it ends we come back to him and he's like all right i'm moving and i'm gonna go yeah. cut my hands free one thing this movie really drove home for me was just like how freaking hard it would have been to live in medieval times. Oh. <laughs> the nature, like how frail your mortality must have felt. Yeah. You know, like it's not like, oh, I'm trapped and then, well, somebody will come walking along this hiking trail where I fell off and they help me or maybe I can get to a cell phone and get help. Or You know, it's like 
damn, like you just get screwed over a little bit and your only option is just to lay there and die. I'm fucking dead. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It is wild. I had that similar thought when he goes into the empty house uh, Mm -hmm. of St. Winifred and I was like, every time you come back to your house, you're like, maybe some rando is in here. (laughs) What I don't have a, I don't have a, you know, a security system. Right. (laughs) I don't have locks on the doors. I don't even have window glass. It could be anything. Yeah, yeah, like you're, I don't know. I wonder how that would have felt to live. I guess it was all they knew. Mm-hmm. But it does like, it does feel like just your death was an even more present thought than it is now, maybe. I was talking the other day about how there's sort of an, a common misconception that like 60 was very old age and like a 60 year old person was about the equivalent of like a 100 year old person Mm -hmm. because the mean death age you know the statistical average death age is much lower because people just died young a lot i mean especially because of infant mortality but because like no it's not as if no one ever lived to be a hundred it just was like that would be such an outlier because you could just die at any moment from any fucking random thing yeah yeah some people will be like oh 30 was ancient for them and it's like yes. no that's not how they conceived it people did live to be like i think benjamin i mean i know benjamin franklin's many centuries later but he lived to be like 80 like there are people even medieval people yes. i think henry the fifth sixth seventh <laughs> henry the seventh mom lived to be like 80 or something <laughs> okay that was medieval times <laughs> yeah um yeah i liked uh i like that segment i like the long i like the long walk and talk or ride and talk when Gawain first first encounters the scavenger and it's kind of like they walk past this like very large battlefield i mean i definitely thought like the use of like natural shooting locations was very cool in this i mean i think there was a decent amount of cgi for certain things like you know having camelot in the background but they used their locations quite well it looks beautiful i think they filmed mostly in ireland sure i was having that sensation of like where do you even film like where is this Mm mm-hmm undeveloped like there are just these huge landscape shots yeah where it, it is speaking to that nature thing of like wow there's just nothing here this is not a path that you are <laughs> no. it's not a well-tread hiking path through you know a forest preserve this is just unbridled nature yeah and must be said dev looks incredible riding a horse i totally. was reading a, a new york times profile of him which I would recommend. Mm-hmm. And he was speaking a lot about the horse, which I think was named Armani. Aww. And Dev's attempt to bond with this horse and like sneak at apples from the hotel so that it would be friends with him. And he had never <laughs> ridden a horse before, which is crazy because oh, he looks wow. so good doing it. A natural, yeah. A real natural. Yeah, he he, he clearly had some kind of, he must have had some kind of time with that horse. They seem to have a, a, a good relationship. Yeah. Horses and are awesome. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. In my heart, I so deeply want to be a horse girl. Mm-hmm. I'm a wannabe horse girl, which might be worse than being a horse girl. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but say. I wish I had a horse friend with me. Um, I guess the only other thing about the little scavenger sequence is they come across this battlefield, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and there's all these bodies and, and he's basically like, the little scavenger is basically like, there was no one here to bury these bodies and two of my brothers are out here. And that was an interesting, again, I guess it's that idea of like humanity encroaching on nature and also what humanity does to itself. And Mm -hmm. Lowry said that he was, he was, I guess, inspired by, by a different myth about some battle where Arthur had killed like 
900 men by himself or something and sort of yeah. wanting the the question of you know we have this idea of camelot as this place of inspiration and civilization and chivalry but what does chivalry actually mean that also means like thousands of dead bodies on a field that can't even be buried because the horrors of war yeah. left no one behind and sort of to challenge the nature of like i think a lot of this movie is about challenging the nature of what chivalrous knighthood is, but without totally disrespecting it either. Mm -hmm. It's not a movie that's just like, oh, it was so dumb that they believed in all that. Like, I think it is a movie that values that as well. Yeah. And if I can just like cite another A24 movie. Well, wait, is it is the Vovich? Yes. That's an A24 movie. It's so funny because I only call Midsummer. I only call it Midsommar, but I would call <laughs> the witch the witch. So I'm glad we both have our own little uh, weird quirky making fun of their interesting naming yeah. spellings um the vavitch is a is a movie also a great ralph innocent performance much more like silky deep ralph innocent voice um why go we out into these wilds um <laughs> where they i think what that movie manages to do this great balance where you both get to understand the sort of like repressive puritan sexual dogma that led to the idea of witches but also fully live in the terror of being like we live in the woods and there are witches in the woods and they're gonna they're gonna turn our baby into a into mm -hmm. a paste um so yeah i think it's interesting to like walk a line where you are able to sort of allow for a allow and be aware of a modernist criticism of a past paradigm but also just like live in it and enjoy telling a story in that paradigm yeah yeah and it's this real moment of both christianity is obviously such an influence and arthur has a whole monologue about you know different christian values and you know i feel like he has a whole speech before Gawain takes off but then there's also this like pagan influence and sort of all these unexplained spiritual things and it's sort mm -hmm. of like yeah they just they had so little explanation for anything, like so little scientific explanation. Yeah. And you really had to rely on, you know, whatever anyone <laughs> could explain it to you as. Yes. Um, and his next thing, his next little element, uh, Gwen's next little element of his journey is the St. Winifred thing, where he, he goes to this house that he thinks is empty, gets in the bed, is woken up by this woman who at first he thinks is just a normal woman that lives there. And he's like, sorry, bro, I'll leave. <laughs> sorry, I was sleeping in your bed. <laughs> and then she essentially says, don't worry, I'm a ghost. My head got cut off. Can you jump into that lake and get it for me? <laughs> like you do. Like you do. Which How'd you like this segment? I think that after the scavenger segment, sort of this next chunk of the movie is maybe where I was the most like, hmm, what is this all building to? And what am I getting from this? Mm-hmm. I do like that in both the scavenger segment and in this, Gwen's impulse is to have a very transaction. Well, I guess at it, it first, he just expects the scavenger to give him advice and doesn't think to give him a tip in return until the scavenger asks for it. Mm -hmm. But then when he goes to get the head to Winifred, he's immediately like, well, what are you going to give me in return? <laughs> so it's almost like he's learned the wrong lesson from that scavenger yeah. thing in a way. Although, as you said, he does go on to do it even when she's like, don't ask me that Don't like me what that. a weird thing to ask me yeah uh i i really like this segment quite a lot and i also think that i was not at that point bothered about where we were going because i feel like a mode that these stories can do particularly these like very old quest stories is they'll put a little mini parable along the way that is its own complete 
act. And frankly, mm-hmm. I do think that this one kind of has a beginning, middle, end in a way that is more traditionally narrative. It's like he sleeps in the bed. He meets the ghost. She asks him to go get the head. He goes and gets the head. There's some cool spookiness back and forth with like, now it's a human head. Now it's a skull. Mm-hmm. He puts it on the bed and he gets his axe back. And cool. That was yes. a fun little That was a fun little episode with St. Winifred. And now he's on. And that plays into his overall thing, but it also was its own self-contained narrative. So that really worked for me. And I thought Erin Kellyman was great. <laughs> I loved her. Yes, yeah, she's, she's fun. so charming. She's fun, and it's a slightly more modern-feeling performance than the rest of the movie, I think, mm-hmm. which kind of works well, even though she's, like, theoretically an older ghost. Somehow it marks her as being from a different world. Yes, not of this world. I totally agree. Yeah, I had that same that same thought that I'm like, oh, maybe when you're a ghost, you, like, you kind of escape time a little bit in a cool way. I believe that the scavenger... And the Winifred and even the giant sequences are all, th- I think this part of the poem, my understanding is it just goes, he had some adventures along the way and then he met the Lord and Lady. And there right. are maybe very brief references that aren't explored and Lowry sort of expanded those out to be all of these little sequences. Yeah. I do think a lot of the poem more so than the movie is at the Lord and Lady's house and that sort of like second game they end up playing, mm-hmm. which maybe gives it a different sort of narrative structure. Yeah. I, I like I it also, this way. I like just, I didn't know where this movie was going. I didn't know that the whole movie was a journey to the Green Knight at the end. You know what I mean? I wonder how I would have perceived this if I had known the meta structure going in. Mm-hmm. I did have a me, feeling that, yeah, he, he's, the, the climax will be arriving at the Green Knight's Green Chapel. Yeah, like when they did that jump to a year later, I was like, oh, we're just already on this. I thought we were going <laughs> to unfold yes. more i couldn't I, I couldn't always quite get a handle on what the pacing of this is going to be as a whole mm-hmm. especially during this next segment which is when he befriends a fox which is the most incredible thing anyone can do i would like to befriend a fox this <laughs> is easily my favorite you love a fox i as you said the other day do you really is what that is, a thing i love yeah. foxes and like what a dream to just have an animal best friend wandering through the woods are you kidding me there's a a sidebar I'm going to recommend a video game, which is maybe silly because you don't have a you don't have a game console. But the game Ghost of Tsushima is a really wonderful game that I played recently for any fox lovers in the world. It is basically a samurai epic about freeing the island of Tsushima from Mongol invaders in, I think, the 1300s or something. Great story, great characters, great combat. But also there are little side quests where you can follow little foxes around the island. Mm-hmm two little shrines and if you respect the shrine then you get to pet the fox oh my god maybe i'll just start being a video game person just for this game (laughs) yeah i think you could you would have a fun chasing foxes around tsushima and then giving them little head scratches oh what a dream and then we jump into this lowry does one of those classic things where it's like oh he ate potentially hallucinogenic mushrooms so you can you can decide if what happens next is is a fantasy Mm -hmm. or real but we get this frankly insane sequence where he sees these giants yes walking along which are rendered i have never watched this show but there's a show called attack on titan i think it's like an anime yes i've weirdly watched a lot of videos like YouTube videos about this series that oh, I've never wow. seen. Yeah. But they depict giants similarly where they're essentially just humans. They're not like, I feel like giants are frequently like Hagrid proportions. Mm-hmm. They're you know, like different they're shaped. Like big beard. They're really bulky. Yeah. These are essentially just like naked, skinny, tall, androgynous people. Yeah. Which was a really fascinating way to depict giants, I think. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, I thought it was a very, a very interesting image. It reminded me the the Hobbit has something like that, where it's like along the way they just see these mm-hmm. thunder giants fighting. Yeah, I forgot about that. Which I really like. I mean, I just think it's a cool. It just works as a fantasy image for me to be like, wow, we're so small. There are things that are just yeah. much bigger than us operating on a much larger scale, and I sort of realize my own smallness. Although, I don't know, there maybe there was some other stuff going on with this. That was a beat that I definitely found difficult to parse. Like, Same. What was going on with the giants? Yes. And it, I do like that uh, Gawain's first impulse is to just be like, hey, can I have a ride on your shoulder? Like, I really don't want to keep walking on this path. And I was like, that is actually very practical. That giant will cover a lot more ground than you. Oh, yeah. They do a good job of being like, he's like, I'm just so sick of fucking walking. I hate it. <laughs> yeah. God, it really does. Ma- it is a little bit of like that revenant. We're just putting you on this grueling journey mm-hmm. and showing how hard it used to be to just be a person um i also don't know if i could fully parse the giants i think whenever there's something like this like the giants you mentioned in the hobbit to me it always feels like a reflection of a time period where they just didn't know what shit was Mm -hmm. so it was like we know that mountains exist we know that giant like storms exist sure there could be giants out there causing that like what do we know that makes as much sense as literally anything else yes and this sort of sense of i guess to me the giants do kind of tie into nature and the threat of nature and the mysteries and the unknown mysteries of nature. But then the giant like reaches for him and then the fox kind of like sings a note. And then yes. the giants all sing a note and then they just kind of like look at something. Yes. it. All, I couldn't quite tell if the fox, I guess my read was that the fox was, that the giant was not friendly. The giant was going to hurt Gawain and then the fox stepped in to save Gawain. Mm-hmm. Is that your reading of that moment? Yes. It seemed like it was going to squish him. Yeah, <laughs> but kind of like sadly, kind of like, kind of like wistfully is like, oh, a human. I guess I'll wistfully squish it. I guess it's like how I squish when like a gnat gets into my house. Yeah, I You're am like, the giant uh, to that gnat. Yeah, that gnat uh, could be but, on a quest, Caroline. Yeah, true. God, think of all the the gnat knights that I've killed. Have you ever I gone guess... to squish a gnat and then a tinier gnat next to it is like. <laughs> oh, and then you're like, I guess this oh, is the idea of, um, yeah, that happens every night. I don't know. Every time I see a gnat, we have a little song exchange. Oh. I guess if the fox <laughs> is nature and and Gwen has befriended nature through the fox and the giants are also part of nature, this is a moment where the fox sort of steps in as the interpreter and says, hey, I know this guy's a human, but I'm standing up for him. Hmm. Don't squish him. He's cool. Okay. I buy that. I mean, what the fox is is his own mystery, which I guess we'll we'll pick up later on because there's kind of like a main fox scene. I just um, remembered that. Um, what does the fox say? Remember that song? Yeah, I do. I do. Wow, that was just Elvis. had a stranglehold on our culture for like a good three months, and then we just then, poof. fully blocked it out. Yeah, that's how it is. That's that's going viral, baby. Like I said, for this part of the movie. I could sort of, I could enjoy it on a visual level, certainly. I think it's beautiful to look at. I I sort of had fun with the English major intellectualizing of what it could be, (laughs) but I think I did feel a little bit emotionally disconnected from it, Mm -hmm. other than just loving Dev and feeling connected to his performance. Yeah. I do think I got a little lost here. And that to some degree, when he gets to the Lord and Lady's house, at least plot wise, you feel a little bit more like, okay, I know where we're at. He kind of stumbles upon this. Yeah. What almost to me felt like 
I don't know, some magical oasis that wasn't always there. Like there was something about them that felt very mystical to me. Well, it's interesting. The shot that reveals, am I, this is one thing I would like to go back and see again. I felt like the shot that reveals the Lord and Lady's castle, which is at the end of a rainstorm that could potentially still be part of his mushroom trip, or it's all Mm -hmm. part of his mushroom trip. And like the whole thing, actually, maybe the second half of the movie all happens while he's like sitting in the glen, like (laughs) tripping on psilocybin mushrooms. Maybe he really died. Maybe that shot where he was a skeleton. He really just died. Was yeah, the real end of the, you could get real. You could, I could see a lot of YouTube videos that are like, "Here's the real ending explained the at the night." After that, we always see him lit from behind, like a ghost. <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh. The shot that reveals the castle is kind of interesting because I feel like it's a. It is one of those sort of like panning shots, and I feel like it kind of appears from nowhere. Like there's a little bit of a visual trick of like. You're in the middle of the woods. There is nothing anywhere. Oh, whoops. No, there's a clearing with a lit up castle. Yes, that was my memory of it, too. And doesn't the isn't the fox the one that kind of leads him to the castle? Yeah, I think so. And then, like, does it, it disappears for a while until the Lord goes hunting. It also feels like they are. S- he's in such wilderness that all of a sudden coming across this very civilized castle. <laughs> civilized. And I am no expert to this. Maybe borderline anachronistic? Mm, it sure. felt a little bit I mean, what's when does this take place? When is Arthur, when is King Arthur? Like nine hundred years ago? I was gonna say, yeah, what do I know? I think it's isn't it like Roman Britain? Isn't what's, that when it's supposed to have taken place? Yeah, there's talk about the Saxons that like would date it if I was a little bit smarter about my British Should I admit history? that I literally was a British history major, and so it's probably very embarrassing. Were you that really? No. Oh well, this yeah. is this is on your ass, Caroline. Uh oh, I'm a failure. I'm more focused on modern history than this was not medieval and earlier was not my time That's period. Fine. Okay, well, thank gosh we have Wikipedia. King Arthur was a legendary British leader who, according to medieval histories and romances, led the defense of Britain against Saxon invaders in the late fifth and early sixth centuries. So yeah, I think the decor of the Lord and Lady's castle was a little anachronistic, a little bit more like from the last 500 years, not from the last 1,500 years. Sure, more Renaissance. I, I mean, to I say nothing like the of the whole... fact that she takes a photograph. Yeah. I feel like the whole movie is really not aiming for any sort of historical realism in the costuming. Yeah, I see what you mean. I feel like it's a very modern... It almost feels like how you would do a play, like how you would sure. do a, a Shakespeare play, right? Where it's like we're sort of evoking old timiness but we're not like even his like yellow cape to me that just feels like a stylish fashion piece less so than his absolutely iconic yellow cape yeah which incredible I cake cape i almost said cake and i will say spe- sort of speaking to the anachronism mm-hmm. lady alicia vikander was serving me padme amidala realness i was Big like time. this is a costume and ma- so maybe that's what it is it's not even historically anachronistic it's just like almost feels like sci-fi Fantasy, at some point sci-fi yeah yeah and her like headpiece i was like yes this you could be one of the little handmaidens yeah. that pretends to be amidala but so suffice it to say, I do think we are supposed to receive something a little dodgy. Well, obviously, there's loads that's dodgy about the Lord and Lady's castle and their whole steez. Yeah. So in the poem, my understanding is that this is a good chunk of the poem is this sort of second game where the Lord says, I'm, he says, come stay with me. I'm just like a day away from the Green Knights Chapel. You can rest up here and then go off to face your quest. Mm-hmm. He says, I'm going to go out and hunt. At the end of the day, I'll give you what I get and you give me whatever you get here. And that leads to 
there's a the poem is structured so that there's three specific days, and the first day the Lord hunts a deer, and the lady tries to seduce Gawain, and ultimately he only gets a kiss. So the come back, he gives the Lord the kiss. Um, hmm. the the second day the Lord goes off and he hunts a boar. Again, the seduction attempt is made, and he give Gawain gives the lady two kisses. So then when the Lord comes back, they do the two kisses exchange. The third day. They he go the Lord goes off and he's hunting the fox. The lady again tries her seduction and offers the sort of green belt slash girdle, whatever you want to call it, magical mm-hmm. protection thing, and also gives three kisses. And it's on the third exchange of this game where Gawain he gives the three kisses, but he withholds the belt. And you kind of get an abbreviated version of that here. It sounded like um Lowry had actually filmed a much longer segment of the movie involving the lord and lady and sort of getting into all of those three days and lowry has actually said that this he like heavily re-edited this movie in quarantine because this was supposed to come out last summer and he said at the time it was supposed to come out he felt unhappy with how it was (laughs) and so in some ways it was like a blessing in disguise that he had this time to re-edit it and he said one of the things he was doing was just playing around with the pacing and sort of condensing a lot of this segment down so that you sort of got the feeling of it without it the, the movie being mm-hmm. even longer and slower than i think like i think you could easily accuse this movie of being very long and slow and i think there was a cut that was even more so and he sort of condensed it down which i appreciate but i also think in reading the poem there was a my brain always just wants structure and there's a mm-hmm. structure of the three the three days the three kisses whatever yeah that that is comforting to my brain and and in this segment of the movie and maybe the movie as a whole i was like i kept looking for that structure and it felt like it wasn't always there for me it was a little i agree the structure is a little bit lost i i i do tend to support that um i i like the structure of this movie overall as a quest and i don't want him to spend more than a third of his quest time in one location or else mm-hmm. it'd be like I don't know. Maybe that's a taste thing. Yeah, or then it just is like it's it's. I understand why that like you could do whatever you want with a with a classic poem, but like I don't know. There's there's something where it's like that's that's now this is like a an ex machina. Actually, interesting. Also, an Alicia Vikander. It's like yeah, this is just a guy in a house trying to navigate the weirdness in that house. Wow, this is actually I had not thought this is a lot like ex machina, which isn't also an A twenty four, I believe. Is it really? Oh, well, there mm-hmm. you fucking go. Um, <laughs> yeah, because uh, Ex Machina is just like a dude in a house with- With a weird beardy dude with who a weird can't quite get a vibe and, uh, on. And just like on. a strange, like intimidating sex vibe to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. kind of like a, a duplicitous moral puzzle that he has to navigate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, go figure. Um, so- so, on the one hand, I, I settled into the section of the movie because it was like, okay, here's people talking and we're looking at relationship dynamics. And that mm-hmm. is a little more for me to hold on to than maybe the giants and the mushrooms and the ghost lady. Sure. And it's just fun to watch Joel Edgerton and Alicia Vikander. Fascinating double casting and that she is playing peasant love interest and now seductive lady mm-hmm. love interest. The other thing I found fascinating about this that I don't think is in the original poem is that Gwen gets a green belt at the beginning from his mother, mm-hmm. yeah, this... which is sent to protect him. Yeah, He loses that along the way. I think the scavengers steal it, if I'm remembering correctly. That's right. And then the lady is essentially giving it back to him. And it feels ambiguous as to whether it is literally the same belt or whether she has just sewn a similar protection belt to give him. Yeah. And I think that speaks to the question of like, what is the lady? What is the Lord? Are these people that were conjured? Like the 
the sort of woman they're they're living with wears something over her eyes that's very reminiscent of what Gwen's mom wore over her eyes. So I guess there's the question of like, is the mom's spirit in some oh. way conjuring this element of the I forgot about story. I forgot that the that the mother Gawain's mother wears a blindfold when she oh that's interesting a blindfold well I really forgot the word for blindfold there she wears <laughs> a an long time eye bandana <laughs> yeah that yeah. was what my brain was going to yeah um she wears a sleep mask um <laughs> yeah oh that's interesting I I hadn't thought about that layer it is very a weird thing where it's like, here comes the sash again that you lost, which is somewhat muddled by like, he lost the axe and then he got the axe back. Yes. One. I mean, not muddled in a way. Or maybe reminiscent that, of. Yeah. it's Yeah. I, I don't want to say muddled in like necessarily a negative or necessarily unintentional. It might have been fully intentional, but but it is just another thing where it, it defies a very like neat explanation to tie it all together. Mm-hmm. For sure. There is an interesting, a lot of this segment is the the sort of the chastity element of the five virtues we were talking about, right? Like For she's sure. very seductive. They have this whole super sexual exchange where she's giving him the girdle. For me, a lot of what was interesting about this is this notion that like, it's not that Gawain has to be a virgin before marriage. Like he can go and have as much sex as he want in that brothel and no one bats an eye. Yeah. But there's this whole other set of rules that exist for the no the nobility, right? Like he isn't allowed yeah. to have sex with this lady because that would be improper because she's actually a person we value because A, she's rich and B, she's another man's property. Mm-hmm. And I think casting the same actress to play both of those parts also feels like an interesting commentary on like the hypocrisy of what this chivalry was where... Yes. You know, it's chivalrous to a certain type of people. And then there's a whole world where it's like, oh, and these other type of people don't count. And we can just do whatever we want to them. Even though Essel, the the present lady, is so kind and caring towards him. And this lady of the house seems much more nefarious. But yeah. he's, he's supposed to respect her more than he respects Essel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And part of that is that it does feel like they, they both explore the totally hypocritical class difference where it's like two people who are fundamentally exactly the same to the point of being the same person are treated differently it also feels like more a sense of like he's on his quest you know now so like everything is very all his choices now are very different because he's on his quest home Mm -hmm. which also feels very uh odyssey-esque you know it's like here's a here's a temptress over here how are you gonna play this one Um, yeah and he plays it what does I guess happen that this there? is really setting up this is really setting up the the sort of moral quandary at the end, but he ends up he is like tempted by her in a way, right? There's like a sexual exchange and then she ends up giving him the girdle, but it's sort of like you're not a knight. Here's your girdle does... all covered in jizz, man. Enjoy. Yeah, exactly. Which that I actually think that was the most vocal my audience was. Oh yeah. <laughs> big, reaction to that shot. <laughs> big reaction to the to the semen shot. You just don't see it in that many movies. No, and, uh, not what you're expecting. Although if you see The Lighthouse, there's loads of it in that. Sure. I mean, or there's something about Mary. I mean, there's there's sure. certainly a long history of... American Pie <laughs> films. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, no, it, not in a, not in this um, dramatic context. And it is like... Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting... That is a, It is a shocking moment. It's very vivid. It is very like, oh, yeah, that's shame. Sure. <laughs> you've got... Yeah. You've got spunk I, all over your hands. I guess from Gwen's perspective and Dev's perspective and all of this, it does feel like on each each one of these little quest things, he's not either fully succeeding or fully failing. Mm-hmm. There's an interesting choice to sort of let him like live in this 
moral gray area where he probably should have tipped the scavenger to begin with. Mm -hmm. But then to be fair, he did tip him when he specifically asked for him and then he still got screwed over and stolen from anyway. So there's not necessarily a clear takeaway there. Mm -hmm. The St. Winifred thing feels similarly like maybe he doesn't handle that with the social elegance that she expects of him, but he does ultimately go through with getting her head back. Mm Mm-hmm. This sort of lord and lady thing, it doesn't necessarily feel like he completely fucks up the situation. I sort of like that he's allowed to be this very fallible hero. Yeah. I think that that is all setting up sort of what the movie's doing at the end. Mm-hmm. Though the final confrontation in the Green Chapel is also like totally about like, are you gonna are you gonna do this the the heroic night way? Are you gonna yes? Are you gonna totally the be the the cheat the dishonorable thing? Yeah. And it's interesting. The way the Lord... Well, I guess we should also talk about her monologue, which this is a segment of the movie. Yeah, this is a segment of the movie where, you know, it's so funny how I feel like a lot of the discussion right now has been about the ability to pay attention to a movie you're watching at home on a streaming service service versus the ability to pay attention to a movie in the theater. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, I do think frequently being in a theater forces you to pay attention on a different level. Mm -hmm. But like, to just be totally honest about my own experience, I can also zone out in a movie. I felt like I sort of half zoned out during this monologue and then snapped back in and realized like, oh, this seems like it's very thematically important to the whole movie. And it is a thing where I was like, oh, if I was at home, I could just rewind and watch the whole thing. There is a value to that, I think, Mm -hmm. because I think... A lot of times people talk about the theatrical experience as if it's this perfect, magical thing. But like, A, you can zone out. B, those people were unwrapping that candy. Like, the the theatrical experience is not perfect. See, I always drink a gigantic frozen drink, and I always go to the bathroom once during the movie. Which means every single movie that I see in theaters, there's like three minutes that I just don't see. Every single one. You were missing. Was it the – did you see the green monologue, or was that when you – No, no. I had to pee way before that. It was probably like (laughs) – it's probably around the time you got to that crossroads with the like skeleton in the gibbet or whatever it's called. Whatever mm, happened yeah, in yeah, a few yeah. minutes after that, Chaboy did not see. Well. Couldn't tell me. God knows if I remember what happened there. So she talks um, about what did, greenness. Yeah. Reminds me of uh, John Logan's play Red. Talk about red. Yes. Red. That's about the Rothko paintings. Yes. Red is, is right? blood. Life. Strawberry. You know, it's, it's better than I'm doing it. But it's, yes, it's about <laughs> Mark Rothko and they talk about... They talk about color in a really interesting mm-hmm. way where they just free associate. And this is kind of a similar thing where she's like, it's yes. life, but it's also rot. And rot seems to be, the way they talk about it there, they really made it feel like rot is a huge part of this movie. Sure. And you do and have I guess that rotted goes... skeletons for sure. Several, yes, many and... of them actually, three of them at least. It almost goes back to the Arthur's Court thing where it's like that place feels like it is slowly starting to decay mm-hmm. even the you know the round table does not feel like here's our buoyant well-lit celebration it's sort of like here's our dark heavy area with a lot of older people who oh. are past their prime yeah and arthur himself seems to be like you know beset with illness his his teeth hurt yeah it's a little moment i liked yeah i feel like the monologue yeah it boils down to her saying like green and if you want to go with the nature thing it's sort of like green and nature will overpower us no matter what and there's always green that's growing growing through the cracks and we're sort of trying to remove it and build over it but that is ultimately a power that it has over us yes it is an endless it is an unstoppable force uh and i do i love the uh visual effect of when the knight puts down his axe on the stone tiles and they immediately like moss grows in like it had always been there oh that that, i really like that too cool visual i will say i was also hugely distracted during this monologue because did you see the alicia vikander tomb raider movie no okay there's a part of this movie eh, 
Yeah. If it was on Netflix and you didn't have to pay for it, yeah, mm-hmm. check it out. It's fun. I would not spend the money to seek it out. But there's a part of this movie that I found ho- unintentionally hilarious where they're sort of in a situation where the the floor is falling out and they have to figure out this like riddle with um, using colors in a certain way to sort of escape the room, mm-hmm. basically. And I really remember this scene because at one point she just screams out, it's a color puzzle, which is not something the movie has established as a thing and is not a thing that I know of existing. But she says it with such confidence as if we all know what that is. <laughs> but the sequence ultimately ends with her having to face the riddle of what is the color of life. And she's and she ends up yelling, green, green is the color of life. In so Tomb Raider? Thing, I was like, wow. in Tomb Raider. Wow. And I was like, well, how are there two separate movies that hinge on Alicia Vikander explaining to us that green is the color of life weird people's like people's careers just go in strange little cycles i mean i you know this is the same reason alicia vikander is uh is in two movies where she sort of plays like the strange beguiling temptress in a weird sex house puzzle yeah (laughs) or at least two maybe she's in a bunch more um no, that's not really the same thing. That has to do with ca- casting directors and that uh, green is the color of life thing, kismet. But yeah, I do think that is an interesting an interesting theme, the idea of like nature is going to rot us all away. It's also interesting because it's like the first part of the movie in an hour that has been indoors. Yeah, It's a very clean, sterile house. And they're like never muddy. They're never dirty. There's a lot of like dirty people in this and muddy people, but- and like rubbing mud off of Dev Patel's cheeks, but yes. um, but it's like all clean in this house, clean and weird, except for maybe friendly, but also sort of threatening. Yeah. I guess like the cum is kind of dirty. Hmm. Sure, interesting. <laughs> she does take the photo of him, as you mentioned. Uh, I, I will like say that. again, yeah, I was. Big this fan. is the part of the movie where I was I was vibing with it on a visual level, but maybe struggling to connect on any other level than that. Mm-hmm. Sort of like watching a music video. I had to sort of treat a lot of this like, okay, I'm just enjoying this for what it is. But like the depth I'm trying to provide, like I did not listen to the green monologue and have a strong emotional reaction to it. I had a sort of intellectual like, oh, what is the movie trying to say reaction? Mm -hmm. But I do think that in this portion of the movie, there was a certain detachment I felt that I think if you were not on this movie's level at all, you probably felt that detachment the entire time. Yeah. I did enjoy... When Gwen goes to leave the castle and runs into Lord Joel Edgerton, and they have a little kiss, which was fun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just like a fun little thing to throw in. Yep, that actually got a that got a wolf whistle in my theater. Oh, well, you had a feisty little audience. We did. It's it's an interesting. It was interesting again to read the, about the poem after the fact and to see that like the exchanging kisses was a part of the poem because I don't think that's something the movie sets up. No, you get the sense that like okay, the wife. I mean, I was wondering if they're about to have sex or something because he says, "Give me whatever the my wife gave you or whatever you got here." And the exchange that the lady and Gwen have is not a kiss. <laughs> so I was like, "What's about to happen?" But he does kiss her. Early on, as thanks for the book, she's like, "You give me a thank you kiss." For but the on book. the cheek, that's true. You know, they have a little. They have a little mouth to mouth smooge. Yeah, I like horseback. that that exists, and I like that they don't really comment on it. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting little puzzle of a moment, and and Gawain kind of like goes along with it, but is like, "I don't like you guys." Bye afterwards. Yeah, he's like, "I'll do it." <laughs> I'll, I'll, you know, but uh. But yeah, it's interesting. It's I, I wouldn't say that I exactly knew what everybody's game was there. Like mm-hmm. for them as characters, like what do they want really feels more like they just sort of existed as a series of puzzles for him. Yes. It is interesting that this is 
this question of a game mm-hmm. is obviously so central to what the oh, green yeah, knight presents he says that. i have a game to for you mm-hmm. and then and then Gawain arrives at the lord lady's house and they're like hey and he and the lord's like i have a game for you too so there is this nature of there's this element of everything in Gawain's life is this weird puzzle that he has to yeah. figure out what everyone's secret meanings are and what the you know he does he seldom knows fully what the stakes of what he's doing are i do like that it you know this is another thing i like about when i said the the inclusion of the self-contained saint winifred parable it's like it's its own thing it's it's unconnected except it does also involve decapitation and this is, in a sense, like also sort of unconnected, except that it has to do with one of his magical items. But it also involves like a game of fair exchanges. Um, mm-hmm. And like, I feel like they all have something to do. They all comment on what is ultimately a pretty simple exchange in the Green Chapel. But it like feels resonant because it's got it's bringing back all these elements that have been explored through the whole thing. Oh, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm feeling talking it out. I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh, I, and that <laughs> goes with that. Oh, I, oh that's cool, too. There's a, we're almost at the end here. So he gets the fox back from the Lord and heads off to the green chapel. And this is sort of our big fox scene where the fox talks, speaks, which I'm sort of surprised that they put in the trailer. I felt like in the movie, it's presented a little more as a surprise moment. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I expected the fox to talk immediately because it talks early on in the trailer. Sure. Yeah. This, I actually found this moment maybe the most confusing for me to parse. It felt like up until this point, the fox had been his friend and helping him on his quest. Mm-hmm. And then it feels like all of a sudden the fox kind of turns against him and is like, stop. I agree. And don't go from here. Not aided by the fact that the sound mixing is a little tough there. Mm, I couldn't yes, quite it was understand hard to hear. everything the fox said. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't quite sure what made the fox... <laughs> what does the fox say yeah i'm not sure what it said what i i Why? just wasn't quite sure what to make of that moment yeah, it at all seemed to be helping him along his quest and then it was telling him don't go on and i don't and then if we have this question that's maybe hanging over the movie of how much his mom is involved in all of these elements of this quest and yes. did she i mean i think there's a reading where she, the mom is the one that conjured the lord and lady and that's why the lady looks like Gawain's girlfriend mm-hmm. she was like okay I'm gonna make a temptress that looks like a girl I know you already like uh-huh. or something there's there's a moment where in the in the seduction scene Lady Elisa Vikander is wearing sort of like a fox robe oh, almost yeah. like it feels like there is some connection to the fox which is maybe because her husband's hunting the fox at the time hmm yes feels like there's something there that I haven't quite unraveled and then we get to the segment of the movie that as I mentioned, fully won me over. He goes to the Green Chapel. There's a really fun sequence where it feels like he's almost like gotten there too early. Mm-hmm. So he just has to sit and wait until Christmas Day for the the Green Knight to actually wake up. I like that as and, well. Yeah. And then we get into the segment that I have seen a lot of people describe the ending of this movie as ambiguous. So I'm curious to hear what you took from it. Is it okay if I ex- say what I... By all means, please. Okay, this is this was my reading, and it was not even a thing where I was like, oh, I felt like that was ambiguous. I felt so certain in what my reading was that it almost confused me <laughs> to see that people felt it was ambiguous. Mm-hmm. My reading is that Gwen goes up to receive his punishment. As in the poem, the knight essentially tries to make two swipes to beheading him, but Gwen flinches mm-hmm. because he's like, I, this is an impossible thing to just be prepared to have your head cut off. And then we... As we see it unfold on screen, on the third swing, Gwen runs away. The movie then goes into a sort of montage segment that explores basically the next like couple decades of his life where he goes back home, he reconnects with Essel, she has a baby, he then takes that baby 
and sort of abandons her and raises this kid as his official son, but ends up marrying an actual noble woman. With a with like tons of nobles and officials around him the whole time and like Merlin and his mom involved in taking the baby away. So it's clear like he goes back and is part of a system that he may not like but has no no ability to contradict. Mm. I read it as being more him driving that. Interesting. Huh. The I did not read him as a victim in the taking away the baby segment. Oh. Yeah, I just sort of felt like Merlin comes in, touches the baby, and Merlin and mom are like, let's go. And Gawain, I mean, I, I, I think of him as totally complicit by saying like, look, I'm going on this path now. I'm going to be king and you can't be part of it. But it, but that it's like, I feel that he's like, doesn't really, like, he's not like that active through that, I feel like. Interesting. I read the mom as being more charitable towards Essel and like being there to support her labor mm. and then... Gawain's the one that's like, no, I don't want you in my life. I'm taking this baby. Interesting. So I guess there is ambiguity there. Uh, so after he has the baby, we kind of cut to the kid is grown up. They're in war. The The son dies in battle. And this obviously weighs heavy on Gawain. He comes back from this war. All of his subjects are like throwing things at him mm-hmm. in a very like Joffrey from Game of Thrones yes. style. Everyone hates him. His subjects are being... I like the, the like in the... Just a little bit of sound design. After this, after somebody throws something at him, he's just sort of like looking lost. But like you can hear in the background like somebody being like stabbed because it's clear like one of his guards is like kill that man. Oh, Just yeah. little details like that. Dev's like 50 at this point or something. Yes. Yes. We're kind of jumping through time and it feels like I might be remembering some individual shots, but it feels like we reach a point at least where he and his sort of royal wife are – they're another Game of Thrones moment. They're like kind of trapped in a chamber where people are coming in to presumably like kill them or it feels like Camelot has fallen in mm-hmm. a way. And then uh, Gwen has this moment of sort of realization. Old Gwen has this moment of realization and he reaches down and he takes off the green sash that he has been wearing this whole time and his head falls off, mm-hmm. <laughs> which shocking image. Then the movie cuts back all the way back to the, the young Gwen and the green knight in the chapel as if this whole thing that we've just watched, this whole like montage has sort of been like a what if segment, a what if had happened if Gwen had run away. Mm-hmm. We see young Gwen then say like, wait a minute, he takes off the green belt, which is supposed to be the, the sort of cheat that would protect him from actually dying, and then goes to accept his fate of being beheaded sort of with the, the courage and bravery that was initially asked of him. Mm-hmm. And then the sort of final moments of the movie is the green knight saying, good job, you know, you 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 did your courage. He kind of bends down and he says, now off with your head. And what I read is a very playful way and sort of like draws a, a finger across the throat and then sort of cut to the title, right? Like that's the ending. Yeah. And I think I had read that as a moment. I think you could read it as then from like the next scene would be the Green Knight actually cutting off Gwen's head or the next scene is the Green Knight letting Gwen go and being like, you learned your lesson. I'm not actually going to punish you. The latter is definitely how I read it. I read it as a very optimistic ending of the thing that we made you confront was sort of your fear mm-hmm. of being a bad person. And now you're allowed to go on and live. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, it's totally informed by my sense of this historic tale of the like the the original fable is like the Green Knight spares him basically for coming and doing it, saying like the fact that you were able to come here and bow before me like he gives him a nick on the back of the neck i think mm-hmm. so i think for wearing the green in the poem the green the um sorry Gwen never takes off the belt he wears the belt through the third 
attempt to cut off his head. And the Green Knight's like, well, buddy, you shouldn't have worn that thing. So shame on you. And just sort of, I'm going to give you this little cut. And then Gwen himself decides, he's so ashamed that he was not fully courageous that he goes back and decides to wear the the green belt for the rest of his life as sort of a reminder to not to not have the cowardness that he showed in that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I yeah, I so I interpreted it as like I would say that I shared your interpretation, which is that what we have here is the possibility possibly all, you know, I like to think of it as like all rushing through Gawain's head in that moment before the green knight swings. He like kind of sees his whole future. Now, you know, it's a little bit it's a little bit fanciful to have him picturing this all in great detail, but I, I kind of like it being both ways. Like this is what would have happened mm-hmm. if you had run away, and you like he has a vision of it. He sees it with like striking clarity, which I felt partway through. I sort of started to suspect that maybe that is what would be going on. Because mm. um, the movie just presents it as if this is what's really happened. He's run away and now we're sort of getting a wrap-up montage of what happened yes. after. In fact, it gives you one of their titles that have been through it. It calls it The Journey Home. So you think like, well, here comes chapter seven or whatever mm-hmm. it is. But partway through, it was something about the fact that it went so long without any dialogue at all mm-hmm. that I was like, feels like we're in a different mode here. And maybe that mode is, you know, dream. Maybe this is a dream he's having. But I, I thought it worked. I mean, I think the filmmaking of that montage is great. I just love a montage. This yes. is something about me. Same, I, same, same. <laughs> from some of my own film work, um, my favorite stuff I ever do is montages. There's like a movie, there's a movie I made that I'm, I'm very proud of what it was and what everybody did for it. But all the stuff that's my dialogue, I'm like, blech. And all the stuff that's montages, I'm like, damn, this is really powerful. Movie called The Parting Glass, which is on YouTube. Uh, first time plugging my. We own can work link it in here. our show notes. Check out Ned's uh, work. Uh, let's let's oh, not link maybe it. Maybe we the won't show link notes. in our show notes. But but you can look it up if you want. But um but I just think montages are such a powerful powerful way of doing storytelling. It's one of the reasons I love movie trailers and really respect movie trailers and and slightly wish we would acknowledge that like a movie trailer is not a sample of a movie. It is a separate, unique product created mm-hmm. from the same stock of footage. But I just think there are so many movies you could think of where you're like, oh I liked it. That trailer though was so powerful. And if it's like, you know, if 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 the original Suicide Squad movie had felt as fun yeah. as that Bohemian Rhapsody trailer <laughs> and had that kind of dynamic energy, it would have been fantastic. But how could it have? I mean it was nothing like that and, and that was a montage. But in this case, to commit to that for probably fully you know, eight to 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. I think it's a beautiful mode of storytelling to be in. And I think that Dev acts the crap out of it. Yeah. He so believably ages through that. I mean, like in terms of, I mean, it's good. It's good costuming and, and makeup and hair design totally. And they do a great job of that. But it's also this just like, you see the life drain out of him and it without a single line of dialogue to hit this nail on the head i think so clearly tells the story of like escaping with your life but no honor is not the escape that you think it is like you'll never be free and it's kind of clear that like all the way through that even when people are you know like one of the first shots in that is his mom sees him come home and it's this like i think you could see both the affection but also like 
his own pain with himself and you feel like she intuits it. I mean, because it's montage, because it's nonverbal, I'm layering what I, onto it what I think I saw, but but it feels like all the way through it, all of his choices are weighted down under this leaden burden of knowing that he, on his first great quest, which was supposed to be his defining glory, he ended up like chickening out mm-hmm. and running away. And even though he lives on, he does it in this sort of joyless way where like all of the things that he cherished about his life are drained out. And then ultimately, like, I think it makes the argument that because of that, I mean, from the scene where people are throwing shit at him, it's clear, like, it's clear, like, this is a bad king. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not a, this is not King Arthur. This is a bad king. He's unpopular. And we don't know who it is that's coming in to raid Camelot at the end, but it could be domestic. You know, it could be his own people coming to, like, execute him, which makes it clear, like, I think it kind of, ties on the neat little fable that like being that stripped of his own sense of self-worth ultimately leads him down a long painful path to the same place which is like you know on the end of a blade and then he has this little thing where he takes off the sash which reminds me of the you know the green ribbon the girl with the green ribbon yeah oh neck? i totally was thinking about that yeah yeah it's like as soon as the ribbon comes off the head comes off i feel like that's got to be intentionally on yeah out the there i don't know i like completely agree with everything that you just said. I think the earlier portions of this movie, as I keep saying, like I connected to visually, I connected to intellectually, but I wasn't necessarily feeling emotionally. And then this Mm -hmm. ending hit me so hard because I think it, I really connect to stories that are about like goodness and morality. Mm -hmm. And this completely was, it's like the question of what if you have the capacity to be a bad person and how scary is that thought? Mm-hmm. And it's so interesting to think about, you know, when he gets back from within the sort of what if segment, when Gwen gets back from the Green Knight, we don't even know what he told people. He could have told people like, oh, I beat him. Like he could have lied about what yeah. actually happened. I and it feels that. like yeah. whatever, whatever the experience he had in running away unlocks his capacity to sort of be an immoral person, which I think mm-hmm. is why I read the him taking the baby away as more of him choosing to be that way. Like it was his cowardice again. Mm -hmm. coming through and it was like his greatest fear he realizes is ultimately not having his head cut off it's like his ability to be a terrible human being and then the consequences that would have on his immediate family and his kingdom and like everything he holds dear and then the sort of emotional gut punch of like getting a second chance to make that choice and making a different choice and then to me at least feeling like you were rewarded for that and that was the sort of quest you were on the whole time all of that i just found so deeply moving and such an interesting modern interpretation of the chivalrous knight code which i think in some ways can feel not relatable to modern life at all but the sort of the core the core idea of just how do you be a good person, which I think is what that knight's code was supposed to be. Like, yeah. even if all of the trappings of it have changed to modern times, I think that core idea of just like, how do you live a good ethical life when you're faced with impossible choices is such a relatable idea and can be abstracted in so many different ways and tied into so many different things. And I just found, I just like loved, 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 loved the ending of this movie yeah i think you're right that it's it's a totally uh i i I buy your interpretation now about like 
about his role in the sort of events there because I I think you're totally spot on that what we see is the what if of like what you said about having unlocked his ability mm-hmm. to to choose selfishly instead of morally. Yes. Yes. And the fear of that. And then at the end it's like that is that is just so much worse. Like having lived a long but deeply unethical life is worse than living a short but ethical life like that Mm -hmm. i think is what the movie lands on and then it sort of gives him at least in my reading the like joy it's like a christmas carol right it's like you saw the worst of your future yes but then oh it's still christmas day the the ghost did it in one day i get to actually go on and learn from this yeah which is very happy and i love the play this is where the green knight the character of the green knight and the performance, I think, is so good. Like, that little playful. It's, like, so playful. The, like, now off with your mm-hmm. head. That's why I don't read this as an ending where it goes on for him to actually get his head chopped off. Because it feels yeah. like the way that line is delivered is so kind. And, like, it's almost like what was off, like what was off with your head. It's not I'm going to take off your literal head. It's, like, I'm going to take off your sense of, like, ego or selfishness or self-centeredness. Like, your head in a metaphorical way. I'm going yeah. to strip you of this this story that you've told of your own life where you're always the central figure and sort of give you a different worldview. And that is the beheading. Yeah. And it totally, particularly if we think of the green Knight as being like an agent of, or an embodiment of of uh, Gawain's mother. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's playful and it's, it's uh, parental. It's so affectionate the way he delivers that last line. I'd love to go back and see that last line again. It's such an interesting, it's an interesting moment because it's just like, and snap to the final title treatment and then come the credits. Like you get no moment after. Not at all. Which does, I think, I think that's why you could call it an ambiguous ending because it does not explicitly show you. Though I agree, I'm quite clear on my interpretation. It's the same as yours, but. But yeah, it's very it's very nice. Um, and and yeah, the more we talk about it, I'm like, that's a very happy ending. Even before, it's almost like it's a happy ending. Even if the knight didn't spare him, in the sense of like he sees this dark pathway, and then like snap, you don't that that doesn't have to come to pass. You can stay yeah. here. And the way Dev acts, like the moment before the first two blows, versus like the moment before the third one, like when we come out of that memory and he takes off the belt and then you just have these like very tight shots of his like face and his mm-hmm. shaggy locks and, and big expressive eyes. When he says in the third one, like there, now I'm ready. Yeah. It's just a totally different energy that he pumps into it. And it's right. Really- and it's so interesting because right before then, the first time he flinches, the knight's kind of like, come on, dude, like you had a whole year to prepare for this, which is a yeah. funny thing to say. And then Gwen is like, I could have a hundred years to prepare for this, but how do you prepare? Like, there, it's not a matter of not having enough time. Like, how do you prepare mm-hmm. for this? And it feels so impossible. And then after seeing the sort of what if, whether we imagine the what if montage is something Gwen is conjuring up, or I could even see an interpretation where it's like a vision that the knight is gifting to him or something. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? It's like after seeing that, then he finds that piece that he thought was impossible. Like yeah. that in and of itself is a really huge journey that happens just in that final segment of the movie. Yeah. I forgot about that line that uh, whether it was one year or a hundred years, it wouldn't be enough because actually it's like, no, how about you live like 25 more years and you see your whole life and it's really desperate and that gets you ready. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so good. I think it's so good. And it's an ending that certainly made me want to go and rewatch the whole movie and sort of trace that thread through it even more. Mm -hmm. Because I like that it's not, 
it's not just a coming of age story. You know, because we've seen, we keep saying we've seen Dev do so many coming of age stories, right? Like virtually yes, every, almost exclusively, everything we've covered except for the last Airbender, and even that, it feels like if they had gone on to make two more movies, it it probably would have been, been Zuko's yes. coming of age story. But yeah. I think a lot of times the coming of age stories they're sort of plot driven, or the growing up is like externalized in some way and this Mm -hmm. feels like such an internal growing up like i'm not sure that he actually his his circumstances don't change so much as in slumdog millionaire where it's like i'm going from you know literally a kid that grew up in a slum to winning a million dollars or lion where it's similarly i'm growing up in this impoverished situation and then being adopted into a family in australia like these are such external quests and like to some degree obviously green knight is a very external quest but i think the most interesting through line of it are these smaller questions of just like, how do you be a good person? And how do you deal with the scavenger? And how do you deal with this headless ghost lady? And how you do you deal with this weird power play of a married couple? And then, yeah. yeah and then how, do, what choices do you make inside of yourself to sort of whatever the world is throwing at you? What is your moral code that will get you through those external journeys? And they tell you externally exactly what the final confrontation of the movie is going to be from the very beginning. They're like, He's going to have to go to this green chapel and the knight's going to cut off his head. So you know that's the plan the whole time. Mm -hmm. But what the actual climax ends up being is him developing psychologically from someone who is not ready to face his own death to someone who is. Yes, completely. And then I think beyond – you can extrapolate that metaphorically to be about just facing life in general, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like the idea of all of us preparing to be beheaded is maybe a bit abstract, but the idea of just preparing to be – a moral adult person is such a universal theme and such a fascinating one to anchor this whole movie on. Yeah. I will say if you like montages, I would highly recommend the rest of David Lowery's filmography. I think dude does montages so well. The old man in the gun has a really like really, really fun third act montage that involves some crime capers. And then a ghost story has an absolutely bonkers third act sort of, montage travel experience that I won't spoil, but like is similarly to this, I think is all of a sudden sort of recontextualize everything you've seen in Mm. a really fascinating way. And yeah, I think, I think David Lowry does some very cool things with pure visual montage storytelling. Neat. Throughout his work. Cool. Man, we just unpacked a lot. We've never, I don't know if we've ever gone that detailed into a, no, or and certainly not that, that structured. And maybe that's a note we should take for future podcasts. But, um, but yeah, like as I said, like I said, so I watched it last night, and just with I didn't really know. In the same way, you know, I, I think the the point that that tweet makes about like MCU movies are all the same in one way, and A twenty four films are all the same in another way. But, um, but uh, with this movie, I definitely didn't know quite like what level it was going to be working on so i didn't really have my feet under me the whole time i was just like having these images wash over me and i do feel like chatting it out now we've had a chance to you know unpack it a lot more and i'm like okay yeah now i'm seeing that theme through that thing and that theme through that thing and i like it a lot yeah Yeah. i mean listen anything that can bring me back to the feeling of being in a high school or college class discussing <laughs> literature. Sure. That is the feeling I'm striving for throughout my entire adult life. I have maybe to end on here. I have a quote from Dev from that New York Times profile I mentioned before about his horse Armani. Um, this was Dev's <laughs> sort of take on Gawain, Gawain mm-hmm. and his journey. 
Garwin. Which is a very modern, yeah, Garwin, a very modern interpretation. He says, whether you're an Instagram model or a YouTuber, there's this thirst to be recognized, to have your legend spoken about to get the likes. And for me, as a young actor in Hollywood, you're dealing with issues of masculinity, ego, success, and fame. That's the same quest this young man goes on to be a known knight. All of that I related to. So I think that that is tying it. We haven't talked as quite as much about this, but that's tying into this idea of like legend and this desire to be immortalized in the way that, you know, Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table have and how that intersects then with your innate morality. And when do you, yeah, what are the moral, what are the moral and ethical lines of both trying to be a knight in the sense of being a good person and trying to be a knight in the sense of a famous person? Yeah. And maybe that just goes to show that throughout history, human beings have kind of always been dealing with the same things. Yeah. And that people being Instagram influencers and YouTubers is not the end of the world because we've always struggled with these exact same topics. And Dev always, he puts a, puts a very identifiable face on it. And yeah. You're for him. Yeah. I mean, I will say, I think of the things we've covered, I still think that David Copperfield is my favorite Dev performance. I think the range of what he gets to show in there particularly the comedy side is so good and so unique and feels like a thing that only he could do. And I think he's a wonderful anchor for Green Knight. Again, given us the hot Aragorn vibes that I am 100% here for. That we're so, so starved for. We're so starved for. I think wonderful performance. But to me, I think I will, I will always hold, at least for now, I will always hold David Copperfield as like the top tier dev that I really want everyone to seek out as well as the Green Knight. Sure. And I agree. And it has a lot to do with what you mentioned on our last episode, that it is really nice when deep and weighty human issues are explored through a comedy. So you almost don't see them coming and then you realize they've done something to you. Uh, That is also like my sort of preferred or favorite mode. So I would say that David Copperfield is still my favorite film we've covered on here. But honestly, I have enjoyed almost all of them. Well, maybe really maybe the last airbender accepted uh last airbender accepted and 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 slumdog was uh half and half uh okay you know what i really liked the last two so much <laughs> and we That's liked lion I mean, I yeah we, we did like lion yeah the journey of dev's career as an actor i think is just so much him learning to embrace stillness and being internal and you really see that on display in the green Knight. i think you certainly saw it on display in lion but lion was also a movie where the like set a lot of the set pieces were just him like sitting on a couch or it was a very like normal human set piece and so Mm -hmm. his stillness was impressive but fit contextually i think what's cool about the green knight is he brings all of that stillness but in in this heightened context he's still able to find that which i feel like maybe in his early days as an actor that would not have been his instinct in the same way and it's very cool to sort of see the evolution of his career in that direction yeah so next up for Dev, if you're curious about that, he is actually directing a movie that he's co-written and he's going to star in. What? It's to come out in 2022. It's called Monkey Man. It's going to be on Netflix, so nice and accessible. It's been described as John Wick in Mumbai. Um, it's Whoa. like partly inspired by this Hindu myth. He co-wrote it with one of the guys who uh, worked on the script for Hotel Mumbai, which was that movie about the terrorist attacks yeah. that I talked about last week. Uh, so, yeah, De- I think Dev's pitch is he's like, I wanted to combine sort of these like Indian stories I heard in my youth with sort of my love of action movies and that genre. So that's really exciting. Maybe we'll circle back around on the pod and do a bonus episode when oh, Monkey Man comes out and man. 
check in on Dev as a director. If it's anything like John Wick in Mumbai with Dev Patel, and it's any good <laughs> at all, I'm going to be nuts for this movie. Well, on that level, as we're sort of like recommending other things for people to check out, I will say The Wedding Guest does seem to fit this monkey man vibe that they're going for. That's the movie, again, Mm -hmm. I talked about last week where Dev's sort of this like hired gun who has to kidnap a bride um, on her wedding eve. Uh, Really fun, James Bondy, serious, but like in a a fun thriller way. I think that that's like a really cool dev performance that i would check out one thing i had the time to i watched i squeezed in one more dev movie here because i couldn't quite let him go i watched this movie called the man who knew infinity that he similarly made in that sort of newsroom uh best exotic Gold hotel period of his career where it was sort of unclear where he was going it's a historical drama where he is playing this real life indian sort of savant mathematician from the 19 it's like right around world war one who goes to, I think, Cambridge and sort of is basically just like writing these extensive proofs that change the fundamentals of mathematics and mm. facing racism there. And oh, it's fun. he's this he's, is about Srinivasa Ramanujan. Yeah. Is it about him? Wow. Did you just know that name? Yeah, I just there's a play about him that I really like. Wow. Yeah, that's exactly who it's about. Wow. He is paired with Jeremy Irons, which I had to laugh because it is yet another over 50 British thespian that Dev has added mm-hmm. to his collection. And what was the British mathematician's name? Hardy or Dole yeah. or something? I don't remember. I think it is Hardy. You honestly wow, remember nice. this better and I watched this movie two days ago. <laughs> I'm very impressed with your memory. Not wow. a great movie in terms okay. of being a very, like, very basic period PC, not challenging story. On mm-hmm. the other hand, I think this guy, this mathematician is like incredible to learn about. And I'm so glad I watched the movie to sort of introduce me to that. And then I read a lot about him after the fact and, yeah, heartbreaking. you know, very sad. Yeah. Very sad story, but also like very inspiring just in terms of what he's able to do. I don't know. It was not as a piece of cinema, like it was not art <laughs> in the way mm-hmm. that the green knight is aiming for, but as a piece of sort of like historical drama, I think we're mm-hmm. seeking out and and maybe an early glimpse of sort of the pseudo leading man or co-leading man roles that we wish Dev had done more. Also, Ned, I don't know how we've gone through this entire series without once mentioning the movie Chappie. Have you ever seen Chappie? The sci-fi like robot a, movie? That's like a Hugh Jackman as the villain Yes, movie, it's a kind right? of a ridiculous sci-fi I'm not I think almost like a cult classic I want to say movie. I lump it in with with District Nine, is it? Connected? Yes, it's the same is director. The same director. Okay. Yes, Neil Blom. Like a Neil Blomkamp. Right. So Dev Dev is. I don't know. It's. I feel like it's a movie that is sort of loved and hated in equal measure. Kind of ridiculous. Dev's in that. I just feel like it's weird that we never want. We you you and I frequently like sci-fi things. I felt like it was weird that we never once mentioned he plays the guy who created the the titular robot Chappie, mm-hmm. who is like a sort of like a Pinocchio story of the robot wants to be a real boy. Anyway, oh, okay. I just felt like we couldn't wrap this up without mentioning Talking the about existence Chappie one time. of Chappie. <laughs> but yeah. I would say of things to check out if you haven't seen them, Lion, Wedding Guest, Personal History of David Copperfield, those would be my real dev recommendations yeah. for you. Word. And sadly, that will just about bring us to the end of dev. But Ned, do you want to tell our listeners what actor or actress we'll be covering in our our next series oh gosh yeah i was i didn't even think about how we would have to do that today but yes um we put those improv skills to use improv skills to use i can't think of any sort of clever segue in but um we are 
For our next cycle, going to be looking at five films from the career of the one, the only, Jamie Lee Curtis. Our um, first non-British actor. We're finally oh, moving yeah. outside of the UK. Yeah, well, it's it, well, it's funny you say that because she is married to Christopher Guest. Mm. So she is, and do you know that Christopher Guest is like a, is like a lord? Really? Yes. Yes. Or I like had a, no he's idea. like a baron. Uh, so technically she's probably something like a baroness of the realm or some shit like that. But So we're easing our way out of the UK by doing someone that's at least <laughs> tangentially connected. Yes. Um, due to her marriage with Guest, who is the hereditary fifth Baron Hayden Guest in the United Kingdom, Kurt is a peeress formally entitled to the title Lady Hayden Guest. What um, the hell? And this it- is not helping my stereotype of what England is like. <laughs> Where everyone is a a lord and a lady. Or of what Hollywood is like. Nor was it my intention to um, introduce our Jamie Lee Curtis cycle by talking about what titles she has inherited through marriage. (laughs) But we will pick it back up. We are jumping back in time to the very start of her career, to her iconic first film, 1978's Halloween. So it's going to be... Halloween in August, baby. So lock your front doors because there's a creeper in the neighborhood. Well, and you know what? That movie made her a scream queen. That's so right. That's her real title here. Due to her uh, marriage with guests, she's entitled to the title Lady Hidden Guest, Scream Queen scream of the Realm. Queen of the Realm. I'm so excited. This You threw her out as a choice, and I. she's not a person I... I, I, she's to some degree, I think a person I've taken for granted as an actor that's always been around and I've never dug much into her career. So I'm super excited to do that. I also had so much fun doing this dev series. I want to give another shout out to Adarsh and Manish for joining us as our guests on this series. I think their perspective was just so educational to me. Like, I think I really went in thinking about how much I like dev as an actor and, sort of realizing the importance that dev has to a whole community is also just been really valuable to me like he i think is a really great figure to be working in hollywood right now and i sort of love where his career is headed and i hope for nothing but the best for him yeah as Deeply far as i'm concerned the best. he can play every british historical figure <laughs> ever in addition to his john wick in mumbai yeah Okay, are, do you have any other final dev thoughts? Can you feel me wanting to not close the chapter on? <laughs> I really I have can. gone down such a rabbit hole of my dev love. This will be a, a difficult transition out of yeah. this for me, I think. Maybe I'm gonna maybe I'm gonna sort of gently place my hand on on top of yours as it hovers with the with the dev chapter like not quite turned and say, <laughs> It's okay, Caroline, it's okay. He'll still be with us in our hearts. You'll say off with my head, but in a in a kind and playful way. <laughs> And listeners will say, what does that mean? (laughs) We always end to be as ambiguous as possible in our podcast. Well, maybe we'll revisit Dev in 2022 when Monkey Man comes out. But for now, Roll Calling is produced and recorded by us, Caroline Sita and Ned Baker. Our theme music was created by Patrick Buddy, and our logo was designed by Nick Wansersky. You can follow us on Twitter at Roll Calling or email us. Hey, if you had any interpretations about The Green Knight that you think we missed, we could always read them out. We could take a little sidebar on our Jamie Lee Curtis series you can email us that's rollcalling at gmail.com and roll is spelled r-o-l-e next week we will be back to kick off our jamie lee curtis series with halloween until then one
Ja, Hans. Oh, spooky. Spooky, spooky.